Listener supported. WNYC Studios. It's politics with Amy Walter on The Takeaway. Historically, major crises have been catalysts for big, fundamental change to our institutions, including our government. And they also tend to bring us together, well, at least for a little while. And while this pandemic is a once-in-a-lifetime event, it is stressing our political system in ways that feel familiar. The thing I remember about that time was feeling like things were moving very quickly and out of control. And I look back now and I think we actually had a lot more time than uh, we're seeing in this crisis. This is a much faster-moving crisis. That's... Tony Fratto, founding partner of Hamilton Place Strategies, uh, former White House Deputy Press Secretary and former Assistant Secretary of the U.S. Treasury Department. Tony was there during the financial crisis of 2008. Back then, it was President George W. Bush who pushed for the bank bailout. So I propose that the federal government reduce the risk posed by these troubled assets and supply urgently needed money so banks and other financial institutions can avoid collapse and resume lending. And pushback came from within the Republican Party. Today, we are ending the Reagan era if we vote for this. And if we can't come back and fix it next year, we will have permanently put a coffin on top of the coffin of Ronald Reagan. Fast forward to today, and both Republicans and Democrats show very little hesitancy to spending trillions of dollars in response to the crisis brought about by COVID-19. I asked Tony Fratto a question many have raised recently. Given the unprecedented plunge to the country's GDP and the trillions of dollars the government has already invested in trying to prop it back up, are we in a New Deal redux? Is the era of big government back? If I know uh, my party well enough, and it's changed some, but I don't think it's changed that much, I think we're going to see a reversion back to the views that uh, we want to limit government as much as possible, that there is a role for government in a crisis, even if many, many of them didn't think so back in, uh, you know, back in 2008. Um, I think the politics were different, not merely because of where the parties were, but also the nature of the crisis. And, mm. um, and so in 2008, you had a situation where it was uh, easy to pin the financial crisis on the banking sector, and a lot of people did. And even if you felt like the the, the problem was much broader and deeper than what uh, than what banks ought to be culpable for, um, if you were out, uh, you know, defending the bailout, then you were to be standing next to Wall Street institutions, and that was a hard place for some people to be. So the politics in two thousand eight were very different, even if it was at the end of the day a crisis that was going to infect the uh, the entire economy, and we needed to see bipartisan support. So that's why it's it's similar to this. In this one, you don't have a villain. You know, uh, maybe the government is a villain for being slow to prepare for uh, the health crisis. Uh, but there is no villain in the economy to say, well, you know, why should we bail out them? You know, they caused this thing. Plus, Tony already sees some splintering along familiar political fault lines. In the past week, we saw, you know, calls on the Democratic side for uh, increased support for uh, states and municipalities that are that have, uh, their budgets have been hit very hard by uh, the especially the um, the lack of retail 
you know, there are a lot of these, a lot of these uh, governments are funded by uh, sales taxes. So if people aren't out buying things, then sales taxes go away, and they've been hit pretty hard. Uh, Mitch McConnell and Republic, a lot of Republicans said, you know, we're not here to support the balance sheets, you know, the, the budgets of, you know, these uh, of these governments. They have their own taxing authority. Let them go tax their citizens on themselves uh, for themselves to, you know, to deal with those uh, those issues. Um, and then on the other side, you've seen progressives say, you know, what about some of these businesses that are getting support? Do they really deserve it? Or maybe we, why aren't we asking them to make some changes in the way they run themselves and the way they, um, you know, they pay their workers and, uh, you know, those kinds of uh, demands now. So we went from uh, very early on in the crisis of let's do everything we can together to go to fix this thing to now reverting to, you know, back to our dugouts um, and, and maintaining our positions. And I do think that's where we're going to end up on this. I don't think we're going to see, um, you know, a sort of common view that big government involvement in the economy is a, um, uh, you know, is a virtue in the Republican Party and among conservatives. Mm-hmm. I don't see them going in that direction. I do see it on the on the Democratic side, though, and the you know progressives and the if it's the AOC wing uh, of the party. I do th- think we are going to see uh, you know if you're you know if you're a Democrat today and you've had um, interest in increased federal spending for things like healthcare, education, infrastructure, um, you're going to look back and say. You know, the the federal government was able to conjure up trillions of dollars in a matter of weeks to deal with this crisis. Why can't we conjure up trillions of dollars today to go fix the infrastructure in this country? Why can't we do it to go, you know, pay teachers and build schools? Why can't we do it to make sure that everybody has um, uh, health care? So I can see that call. And if you're Republicans, you better have good answers for those questions because, um, you know, it's not a theoretical thing anymore. We've actually seen, you know, the Fed and Treasury able to go out there and create trillions of dollars out of thin air when when it was needed. Barack Obama was elected in November 2008, just a month after President Bush signed the Emergency Economic Stabilization Act of 2008 into law. The bank bailout fell short of stabilizing the economy. And the new administration came in with its own stimulus plan. My name is Jason Furman, and I'm a professor of the practice of economic policy at Harvard University. Jason served as a top economic advisor to President Obama and an architect of the 2009 Recovery Act. I asked him how this current crisis compares to what he experienced a decade ago. Policymakers had two big advantages in responding to this crisis. It was incredibly clear what was happening in the economy. Normally, there's actually a lot of debate about um, how bad the economy is. And they had a lot of different things that could take off the shelf um, from the last crisis. The Fed responded flawlessly because it moved quickly and it used all of its old tools, used them at scale. Um, Congress moved impressively quickly, impressively at scale, but I think mixed in terms of the hodgepodge of programs they did and didn't include um, in the CARES Act. What is it about the CARES Act that you think should have been included? The biggest omission was aid to states and localities. They're going to have a budget hole of three to $500 billion. And that's tax revenue they're missing, which means they don't know how they're going to pay teachers 
right. you know, firemen and police officers come the fall. Um, that really should have been um, in the CARES Act and is the should be the top priority for the next legislation. Which it sounds like there is going to be a deal cut on that soon enough. Yeah, I think, yeah, I mean, I think the dynamic of the CARES Act was Democrats had a set of things they wanted, like unemployment insurance. Republicans had a set of things they wanted, like various aid for businesses. And both sides said, you can have yours, I can have mine. Um, and that looks like the dynamic, at least for the next bill, um, but maybe not forever. It seems as if a lot of folks in the Trump administration, I think the president himself thinks this is going to be something of a V-shape recession, right? We're going to go really far down, but then bounce right back up. There are other folks, economists out there who think we're going to be in something of a U where we're going down, we're going to sit in that bottom for a while before we come back out. Where are you on this? I think we're going to get halfway up the V quickly, and then it will be a slog that will take many, many years. Um, and the reason I think that is there's two types of job creation. One is your business reopens and you go back to work for the same employer, and that can happen very quickly, and that will happen for some people. But for others, that job won't be there anymore. Maybe even a lot of jobs in that industry won't be there anymore. And the process of finding a new job and a new employer, even worse in a new industry, um, is one that takes a while. Mm. And so I think after the initial rapid progress, we're going to be in for a prolonged multi-year slog to get the economy back. So you're at least thinking of it as a slug as opposed to like a W where it goes up and then goes back down. You just think it's yeah. just going to take a long time to get to the top of the V as opposed to go up and then come back down. Yeah. I mean, oh, no, I don't think it becomes a V anymore <laughs> when like it starts like to look a like a V, v. and then yeah. it flattens out. So sometimes people maybe call that a Nike swoosh. So maybe that's uh, <laughs> that's what I think. Um, you know, WCS, I think there'll be some steps forward, some steps back. So I think there'll be some jagged things along the way. But I think the most important you know, lesson in the economy is that the normal way in which jobs are created to get out of recession involves finding a new employer. And that always just takes a long time. So let's talk about that bipartisan goodwill that you just talked about earlier about, you know, Democrats say we want this, Republicans say we want that, both sides go, okay, fine, you get yours. How long is this going to go on for? How long do you expect this to last? And again, as somebody who's been in the White House, working with the other side? What did you learn about how this stuff works? I'm very worried about how long Congress will remain able to do things in a functional manner um, to deal with this crisis. You know, partisanship and polarization just grow over time. The urgency of the situation will appear to diminish. I mean, we've already gotten used to 2,000 people dying a day. The concerns about the debt will grow and, you know, a belief that the economy is taking care of itself um, will grow also. And so I think there may just be a window here of opportunity to continue to do big things, you know, after which it might start to close. I asked both Jason Furman and Tony Fratto what their predictions were for the future. Both pointed to a long road ahead. Jason first. I certainly think um, this makes it clear that we need to you know, improve the social safety net for leave, for sick days, um, for health care. 
also be if we still have, as I think we're very likely to, an unemployment rate of around 10% at the end of next year, um, we're going to need a prolonged period of job creation. Mm-hmm. And you know, substantial investments in infrastructure, including green infrastructure, I think could be an important part of that. That's not needed today, um, but it will be needed in, in a year or two. There is a lot of hope that we're going to be able to climb out of this relatively quickly. People are looking for, uh, you know, trying to be optimistic about a return to normalcy and normal economic activity. And I think the damage from this is still so deep that it's going to be with us for a long time. So while we're going to have this feeling of, you know, wanting to reopen, wanting to get back out and do the things that, that we want to do, even with uh, some of the, uh, the risk of the virus still out there, I think we need to be prepared that that uh, you know balance sheets for households and businesses and governments uh, have been pretty severely damaged, and they're going to it's going to take a long time. It's going to be a long economic road back to getting um, uh, employment and incomes to the level that we remember from just a few uh, months ago. Tony Fratto is founding partner at Hamilton Place Strategies. He's also former deputy press secretary to President George W. Bush and former assistant secretary at the U.S. Treasury Department. Jason Furman is a professor of the practice of economic policy at Harvard Kennedy School and a former top economic advisor to President Obama. The inspiration for much of the show was an article published in the Wall Street Journal earlier this week titled, Coronavirus Means the Era of Big Government is Back? History starts the story, shows that big national shocks have a way of changing the role of government in lasting ways. 9-11 gave us a new government agency, Homeland Security. The financial crisis gave us new regulations on banks and the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau. And of course, the Great Depression and the New Deal brought about things like the Social Security System, the Securities and Exchange Commission, and the National Labor Relations Board. I sat down with one of the authors of that piece, Jerry Side the executive Washington editor of the Wall Street Journal. I talked to him about whether we can expect massive government expansion to deal with the national fallout from coronavirus. Well, it has brought about big government already, and it will bring about change, I think. It's hard to predict exactly what will linger, what will last, and what will go away when the virus goes away. But history does tell you that things that are put in place tend to live on, at least in some form. I mean, for example, if you think back Uh, Just to 9-11, not so long ago, two decades ago, we exited the 9-11 terrorism period, but we lived on with a brand new uh, giant uh, government agency to handle intelligence, the Directorate of National Intelligence, and a whole new cabinet agency, the Homeland Security Agency, that didn't exist before 9-11. And so those those live on today. Um, After the 2008-2009 financial crisis, uh, you saw the Federal Reserve in particular create whole new mechanisms for pumping money into the economy that didn't exist before. Those live on, and they are now being used and being added to in this crisis. So Mm. I think it's almost inevitable after a shock this big that some of what the government does, and by the way, at the state as well as the federal level, will live on in some form, uh, and we'll see what form that actually takes uh, maybe a year or two down the line. I'm glad you brought up the 2008-2009 because you also noted that The Wall Street Journal NBC poll found that support for government expansion, the the government spending, is much higher 
uh, today than it was back in 2008 and 2009. And that owes it in large part to the fact that Republicans are more supportive of that. Why do you think that is? It is bigger now than it was then, and it is way more bipartisan now than it was then, as you say. I mean, in in 2008, 2009, you had House Republicans who stood in the way not just of Democrats, but of a president of their own party, George W. Bush, when he tried to push through a bank bailout. And then they uniformly stood against a Democratic president, Barack Obama, when he tried to push through a stimulus bill. Now you have way bigger economic rescue packages, including a $2 trillion rescue slash stimulus plan a few weeks ago that passed with virtually unanimous Republican support. But a totally different response, uh, and this isn't just in Washington, this is, is a, as you suggest, our poll tells mm-hmm. us this is across the country. You have two-thirds of Democrats and two-thirds of Republicans saying this expansion of government's role in the economy is a good thing. Why? Why have Republicans in particular swung around? Well, I think, first of all, it's the, sh- the size of this shock. It's just enormous and scares people. Secondly, it's also the nature of the shock. I mean, Republicans look at this and they say, well, this wasn't the result of some flawed government policy or some act of malfeasance. This was an act of God in the first instance. And then in the second instance, it was government action that ordered the economy to be Mm -hmm. shut down when, uh, you know, sort of social distancing and economic shutdown orders were implemented. So if government caused it, then it is uh, okay. It is legitimate for government to fix the problem government created. So that's why I think Republicans have come around. As you say, you know, Donald Trump ran as something of a populist. We've heard about the so-called pivot to the infrastructure bill now since 2016. Now would seem to be a good time to push for a big infrastructure package, a la the New Deal. The president seems somewhat open to it, but Mitch McConnell and a number of Republicans are pushing back. I mean, do you think that this could happen, especially if the economy continues to struggle as we get through the summer? Well, he's the president is certainly open to it, and that increases the chances for sure, as you suggest. Um, not only is he for it, he's cheerleading for it. One trillion, two trillion, whatever it takes. He's a builder, right? He wants to build things. So he wants to build American infrastructure. That has always appealed to him. And he does not worry uh, about deficit spending. He was in the private sector, the king of debt, he said, and he's okay with that now, particularly at a time of low interest rates. And so I think the period in which everything that could happen in Congress in a bipartisan way would happen in a bipartisan way may have ended. And so I think we will have a an infrastructure debate, uh, a, a debate about a big infrastructure bill over the next several months. But it will be messy and it won't be as uh, as easy to slide something through going forward. So what are the odds of success? You know, that may depend in part on how bad the economy still needs stimulus two or three months down the line. Of course, we also know that the 2008-2009 financial crisis and the bailouts produced this populist backlash, right? So on the right, you had the rise of the Tea Party. On the left, you have the Bernie Sanders, Elizabeth Warren. Seems to me that there is the very strong potential that at the end of all of this, especially as we see more and more reports about, you know, certain big restaurant chains getting bailout money, loan money uh, over small businesses, that there is going to be even more fuel poured on this populist fire. What do you think about that? I think it's uh, happening right now. The question is, how big does that get? Republicans in particular were very careful to structure the bailout in quotes this time so that it included a lot more regular people and a lot more small businesses. Nonetheless, we have seen 
that not everybody who's taken advantage has been what people think of as a small business. They have tried to uh, wedge in to take money away from, well, in the in the eyes of the populace, to take money away from legitimate small businesses who were supposed to get the help. That's already producing a backlash. I think you'll see uh, you'll see some more of that. You know, I do think in an election year, it's a little harder to fig- to predict how that plays out. But you did have after 2008, 2009, not just the Tea Party, but also Occupy Wall Street, there was a real angry movement on the left. And that's not the same as the Bernie Sanders movement, but it's it's not far removed from it. I, I suspect more of that anger um, or anxiety or agitation on the left will take the form of a push for things like uh, nationalized health care and a guaranteed basic income and will probably differ from the populist backlash on the right in that sense. Jerry Seib, thank you so much for talking me through all of this. I really appreciate it. Thank you. My pleasure. Jerry Seib is executive Washington editor of The Wall Street Journal. Each election season, political memoirs abound, doorstops that sometimes divulge more than intended. No matter how diligently they present themselves in the most electable light, they always reveal themselves. Their insecurities, their fears, their ambitions. How to read a Politico on this week's On the Media from WNYC. Find On the Media wherever you get your podcasts. It's politics with Amy Walter on The Takeaway. Uh, Just a reminder, folks, we're taping the show from my home these days, and our guests are joining us from their homes. So dogs barking and children popping into rooms. Well, you know, anything goes. We got to roll with this. As you probably heard, there's been a lot of back and forth this week about whether or not lawmakers would come back to Washington on Monday. On Friday, I spoke to Erica Werner, a congressional reporter at The Washington Post, to find out what to expect for next week. The Senate will be coming back on Monday, um, May 4th, and the House said at one point earlier this week that they, too, would be coming back um, on that same date, but they reversed course the next day um, and said they'd received advice. Steny Hoyer, the majority leader, uh, said he'd received advice from the attending physician at the Capitol that... uh, it would be unsafe to gather in large numbers. Um, The attending physician, as we understand it, didn't specifically tell them not to come back, but just that there would be risks associated with it. There was also pushback from lawmakers who were worried about coming back. And as a result, they canceled those plans. Nancy Pelosi indicated at a press conference yesterday on Thursday that perhaps they would be returning the following week, so the week of May 11th, but that doesn't seem to be set in stone. And then there were reports this morning as well that there are not enough tests to test every senator, and certainly not all the staffers that may be there. And even if they do test them, it takes a couple of days to get those results back. That's right. And Mitch McConnell, despite these complicating factors, is full steam ahead um, and intent on returning. He's made the point on several occasions that if our essential workers, people that work at grocery stores, healthcare workers, everyone else that is working can be out there working, that senators should be doing the same. 
but that view is not universally shared among senators, particularly Democrats. Well, this is a good transition, Erica, into the discussion about bipartisan goodwill that I was going to ask you about. So it seems, again, the the lines on coming back or not coming back are dividing along party. And now we have another party division on coronavirus funding. Um, it's been quite remarkable to see Congress pass in a really short amount of time, bipartisan legislation, three tranches of money to battle this this pandemic. But they are now hung up on the latest. And the issue is on spending for state and local government. So can you can you give us the latest on what's going on there? Republicans are turning towards reopening the economy, saying that that's the best way to stimulate the economy, while Democrats remain focused on trying to infuse federal funding into the economy. And in particular, as you said, Democrats want to send a lot of money to cities and states. Nancy Pelosi uh, yesterday on Thursday cited a $1 trillion figure, which would be $500 billion that states have asked for through the National mm. Governors Association, and another approximately $500 billion that uh, municipalities, localities, counties have asked for. Uh, Republicans are rejecting that. Senator Cornyn called that figure outrageous. Um, and they have drawn a red line, Senator McConnell um, and others, on the issue of liability protection for businesses and saying that they will not agree to any funding for state and local governments without including these protections, which Democrats, in turn, have rejected. So it's very unclear where a compromise on these issues is going to be found. But it seems as if, as you pointed out, at the end of the day, even with the other coronavirus bills, that they found a way to come to compromise. Not everybody got exactly what they wanted, but given the deep economic pain that the country is going through, that it is more likely than not that something happens. Do you agree with that? Yeah, there again, there is a consensus that something needs to happen and probably will happen. What it will look like um, is far less clear. Certainly the huge figure that uh, Democrats are starting with for cities and states, uh, it's highly unlikely they're going to get anywhere near that number. And um it's also unlikely that uh, Republicans will get the very robust liability shield that they're looking for. There's going to have to be some middle ground found on both of those issues, um, and we'll have to see what that's going to look like. And then finally, I wanted to ask you about the money that Congress has appropriated through the Small Business Administration to give out give these short-term loans, grants, whatever, to small businesses. And of course, there's been a great deal of reporting about how big companies, the Los Angeles Lakers, Ruth Chris Steakhouse, have somehow ended up with a lot of this money, many of these folks giving, these companies giving that money back. How did this happen? How did Congress not sort of see this coming? And what are they doing about it? Yeah, there's been a lot of attention, as you say, on this program, the Paycheck protection program um, that is now funded at around 
$500 billion through two different tranches of funding. And if you talk to Republicans and some Democrats, the explanation is that as they created this program in the CARES Act that was passed in late March, it came together very quickly and their intent was to make it easy for businesses to get these forgivable loans. And so they wrote the rules in such a way that the money was easy to access, that the obligation was on borrowers to self-certify. Banks, not the government, were the ones doing the actual lending. And as a result, there were loopholes that existed and to an extent by design in order to make the money easy to access. But that also created a situation where a number of big businesses, including the Lakers of all people, were able to get the money. So in the second tranche, um, which uh, passed a couple weeks ago and is being burned through very quickly, they did uh, make an effort to direct more of the money to small businesses and, you know, have a set aside for community lenders that would ensure that smaller minority-owned, women-owned, lesser-served areas would be able to tap into the money. They're having special periods of time where only smaller businesses can apply. They say that they are having some success in that regard, that the amounts of loans going out the door now with this second tranche are smaller amounts to smaller businesses. We haven't had a full accounting. There's very little transparency with this program. Um, So we're going to have to kind of see whether they've actually been successful in getting the loans to the small businesses that they want to have them. Well, Erica, thank you so much for taking the time to walk us through all this. And uh, good luck. Please stay safe up there at the Capitol. Thank you very much. My pleasure. Coronavirus has changed every bit of the way we conduct life, including presidential campaigns. And although Joe Biden is the Democratic Party's presumptive nominee, he's been sidelined to his basement and unable to do traditional campaigning. Even so, that doesn't mean the news surrounding Biden hasn't broken through. This past week, reporters have uncovered some corroborating accounts supporting the claims of Tara Reid, who's accused Biden of sexual assault in the early 1990s. On Friday, Joe Biden went on Morning Joe to address the allegations. Any woman, they should come forward. They should be heard. And then it should be investigated. I believe it have come a long way and we have a long way to go in this system before we, in fact, are in a position that there's a fair and unbiased view. But at the end of the day, it has to be looked at. These claims are not true. For the last few days, Democrats had been pushing for Biden to personally address this issue. And while he's finally broken his silence, the debate over this incident isn't over. The situation is just the latest to reveal a central tension in the debate over charges of sexual assault and harassment. Namely, what do we do when it's our friend, our colleague, or ally who's accused? In life and in politics, the reality's messy. As humans, we have a hard time reconciling conflicting narratives or facts. 
Psychologists call this cognitive dissonance. In politics, it's tagged as hypocrisy. Now, voters have to deal with this all the time. In a two-party system, you only have two choices, and both will have flaws that make them unappealing. Often, we're left to decide which is the least bad option. I reached out to Annie Linsky, a reporter at The Washington Post, on Thursday. Annie covers the Biden campaign, and this week she co-wrote a story titled Democrats React to Biden Assault Allegation with Pleas for Explanation or with Silence. I wanted her to get at this tension, this cognitive dissonance, especially among members of the Democratic Party who are supporters of the Me Too movement and who were outspoken in their calls to believe Christine Blasey Ford's allegations against Supreme Court nominee Brent Kavanaugh. This accusation against Joe Biden has caused this sort of almost kind of soul searching within the Me Too movement, where a lot of the leaders who have been for years saying over and over again, believe the women, believe the women, are suddenly a little bit hesitant to do so or to say that specifically about this case. And there's a sort of shift instead to the woman should be heard respectfully, which is quite a difference. Yeah. Um, you know, you've seen some, um, especially in the last day or two, postings um, by some of these leaders, Alyssa Milano being somebody who is extremely active on, in this space. She was, I'm sure you remember, you know, in the audience of the Kavanaugh hearings as a, as a Me Too activist. Um, and, and in this case is trying to kind of square her support for Joe Biden, her kind of deep concern about Donald Trump being reelected with her belief that women should be heard and, and and women should be believed. And so she wrote mm-hmm. about this last night where she was trying to say, well, you know, the idea that women should be believed was about sort of changing the the environment and the culture where women have always been dim- dismissed and never literally meant every single word a woman utters should be believed. So it's just where she's kind of grappling with these two different urges. One is there's this sense that Trump is sort of an existential threat to many of these leaders and activists, and they don't want to do anything that is going to harm that. But at the same time, you know, the question is, are they harming this movement that they have Mm. put so much into um, with that sort of hesitation and in in many cases with that silence? So I want to move to another big thing that seems to change um, in this moment now, in this pandemic, and that's the Biden campaign messaging around a lot of policy issues. During the primary, he attacked Bernie Sanders I think it was during a debate where he said, look, people don't want a revolution. They want um, results. And now we're in the middle of a pandemic that's shaking our institutions to their core. Can he really campaign on, like, let's get back to normal? Is that viable? I do think that this pandemic and both, you know, the sort of the twin crises here that the country faces, you know, both the sort of immediate health crisis, but also just this broader, sprawling economic crisis will change and are changing the way the campaign is, is looking at, at issues. And, and you're already sort of seeing that. Um, I think that some of the early kind of glimmers of that came when um, Joe Biden's campaign and, and Joe Biden said th- that he was supportive of many of the issues that Elizabeth Warren, quite frankly, was pushing in mm-hmm. the um, CARE Act, and that, of course, is the $2.2 trillion you know, relief package that was passed by Congress and signed into law by President Trump. Biden was 
pushing for that carrot to go even further than it ultimately did. I mean, he wanted to see an increase in Social Security payments, something that Warren had um, suggested. He wanted to see um, $10,000 in federal student loan debt erased, you know, something else that Warren had pushed for. And so, you know, and he's even in some of his um, virtual fundraisers uh, talked about structural change, which is something that is like, oh, that's a a word that Warren had campaigned on. And I think some of that is about party unity. Um, Some of that is about embracing the liberal wing of the party. But I think all that's also reacting to a very different environment than there was when he even sewed up the nomination. To that point, Annie, do you see that he's he's talking about these issues as a way to unify the party? Or do you think that this would mean that he would actually govern differently than he was thinking about before this pandemic hit? I think there's a combination of both. It would be Mm. impossible for anybody to govern the same way that they had Mm. thought was possible before this happened. But it, it, it does sort of very neatly coincide with a notion of unifying the party. So I think both can be true. I mean, I think there will be some sort of, some tests of this coming up. Um, the next version of a stimulus bill, reporters are going to be watching very closely to see where and if Biden does weigh into that, because, mm. you know, we are expecting a, a much bigger fight over um, some of the policies that the more progressive wing of the party wants to see in in that next fight. So I think there will be more tea leaf reading in terms of is he going to just stay quiet and kind of let Pelosi and Schumer, the congressional leaders, do their work? Or is he going to kind of weigh in in, in a more public way and try to push those two in a, in a more progressive direction that would be party unifying and would signal how he would govern, but also could be quite dangerous in terms of putting together some kind of deal. Well, Annie Linsky, thanks so much for taking the time to talk with us about this. I really appreciate it. So great to talk to you. Annie Linsky is a national political reporter at The Washington Post. Over these past few weeks, we've been talking to mayors in cities big and small all across the country to hear how they're responding to the coronavirus pandemic in their local communities. And this week, I decided to check in on someone I met back on a visit to Iowa in January. Quentin Hart is the mayor of Waterloo, Iowa, in Blackhawk County. Waterloo has been in the news lately because of an outbreak tied to a meat processing plant that employs 2,800 people. About 90% of the cases of coronavirus in Blackhawk County, Iowa, are related to Tyson's pork processing plant. While the plant closed last week, I wanted to catch up with Mayor Hart about how that happened and how he, his family, and his constituents are doing. You know, so many people, so many lives uh, have changed. We've gone from uh, the campaign field to now uh, staying at home as much as we can. So my family is good. My wife, a lot of uh, mobile calls. My children, they're doing some schoolwork and Mm -hmm. stuff like that online now and uh, we are trying to become peacemakers because <laughs> when you're in a house, you argue. But, but, uh, but you're doing okay we're, with that. Yeah, we're, we're adjusting. We are absolutely adjusting and thankful and blessed. When we were in Waterloo in January, you talked a lot about the community and, and the kinds of folks who live there. But can you just remind our listeners about Waterloo, where it is, and really what sorts of industry drive your economy there? 
Uh, Waterloo, Iowa, say close to about 70,000 people, uh, 16% African American, uh, growing Latino, probably out that uh, 70,000 of uh, Bosnian, Burmese, Congolese, Liberians. John Deere created the first gasoline tractor, their first gasoline tractor here in Waterloo. We have several plants. Uh, we have the Tysons as one of our uh, major employers as well. And in addition to uh, Omega, Birch, uh, just a manufacturing background, but also mixed in with a little bit of high tech as well. So very diverse economy here. Of course, Tyson has been in the news recently and most recently that the Tyson plant in your city has now closed indefinitely. And I saw a statement that you released right after that where you said, this is the action we've been waiting for. So can you talk us through that, Mayor Hart? You had been advocating for this action and it just hadn't happened. So we started hearing rumblings uh, that people were calling in sick around April 9th and we had a discussion. The health inspector, Dr. Nafisa, and the sheriff did a walkthrough through the facility and, and had a lot of questions about uh, what was happening at the current time. And the company was saying they were uh, putting things together. They had all the good conversation about what they're going to do. But we felt like almost at that point, it was a little bit late. Uh, we kept hearing rumors. Our healthcare officials kept kept saying that they're seeing all of these new cases. And I think back then, there was 21 or 32-ish, April 10th, a little bit more than that following. Monday, Tuesday, we're hearing large numbers of workers are calling in sick. Our emergency personnel said they're starting to see a lot of people that had uh, correlations or relations to the plant. Uh, two weeks later, I mean, we're over three, four, five, six hundred. Three weeks later, we're over 1,300. And I'm being told that 90% um, of those cases has a direct correlation mm. to the plant. So we wanted it closed. We talked to who we could. I talked to the governor. Um, so the governor did on April 15th, um, on our conversations, 15th or the 16th, state that she would send additional testing. So she did that the following day. Um, they indicated that Tyson's would start doing on-site testing, and they did that this week. And then they closed, I think, about a week and a half ago, if I'm not mistaken. I just am wondering why, as the, as the number of cases were climbing, why Tyson's and other folks who had the power to do something about this didn't say, well, we have a crisis going on. It seems like they continued to, to try to operate even under the circumstances where uh, they could see that people were really getting sick. My statement is there is a direct correlation between uh, a strong agricultural base uh, a healthy workforce, production flow, and the impact to local and national economies. If you if you don't have um, a protected workforce or if you have a workforce where large numbers are not feeling well or could have potentially contracted the virus, then you don't have production. And with that many people calling in sick or unable to work due to the virus, no matter what you do, you're not going to produce at the same level. 
And what do we know about the economic impact of this on the individuals who work there? I, I did see that they were supposed to be paid um, during this small transition period. Mm. Um, I don't know how long, but that is a, a, a weight off of people's shoulders right now. So I uh, do appreciate them being paid for it. They should be paid during this time. And they did take the step to do that. But after a certain period, I don't know how long that will last. Uh, I'm anxious to hear as well uh, the comments about how long that will happen during this transition. You've also noted that one of your worries is the disproportionate impact that this coronavirus is having on communities of color. This company employs everyone. And, and so we've seen across the country how this has a severe impacts on, you know, those with upper respiratory problems, you know, you know, those that, um, you know, some folks can't, can't work from home, you know, Mm -hmm. they, they, the place has it in close proximity. And hopefully that's why, you know, people have asked for dividers, but this has a significant impact, uh, on all those, uh, populations here. And that's why, you know, from day one, uh, the city, the city council myself, uh, push forward the proclamation asking uh, for a stay-at-home order even prior to us hearing about this outbreak because we want to make sure that, you know, this community is protected uh, in the right manner. And from what we've seen, as you indicated, across the country, this has a disproportionate impact on those with um, um, certain ailments as well. Well, Mayor Hart, Thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me again. And I really hope that you and your community stay safe and stay well. And and thank you. And if there's one message, you know, for people to understand that pro-business means to be pro-workforce and to be pro-workforce means to be pro-health. And that is exactly uh, what we're trying to do. Quentin Hart is the mayor of Waterloo, Iowa. That's all for us today. Our senior producer is Amber Hall. Patricia Jacob is our associate producer. Polly Arungu is our digital editor. David Gable is our executive assistant. Jay Cowett is our director and sound designer. Debbie Daughtry is our board op. Vince Fairchild is our board op and engineer. And our executive producer is Lee Hill. You can call us at any time at 877-8-MY-TAKE. Or send us a tweet. I'm at Amy E. Walter. And the show is at The Takeaway. Thanks so much for listening. This is Politics with Amy Walter on The Takeaway.